As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, it's Wendy. And it's Jess. And you're listening to the Food Heaven Podcast, your online resource for delicious and nutritious living. Welcome to another episode of the Food Heaven Podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. Melissa Fabello, a social justice activist whose work focuses on body politics, beauty culture, and eating disorders. As a digital creator, Melissa develops online content to challenge others to unpack oppressive ideology around food, bodies, and beauty. She received her PhD in human sexuality studies and also holds a master's in education in human sexuality. Today we're going to be talking with Melissa about body image, sex, relationships, and more. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So I feel like you have a bunch of different intersections <laughs> that you focus on, including body politics, sex, eating disorders. How did you initially become interested in all of these things? Or did it kind of develop over the years and then you saw that they, um, yeah, that there was some intersection there? Yeah. You know, it's funny. People will always ask me like, what got you interested in eating disorders? And I kind of am like, what do you think? Like, I, like, <laughs> I had one. <laughs> like, it's, I feel like anybody who works in that realm kind of has, has some kind of background with that experience in some way. I think when I really think about it, I think that just growing up as a woman and growing up as a girl, having so many experiences that were negative around sex and around gender just like, you know, over time, I guess, just got me kind of interested in those topics. I think you look at a sexuality program, and it's basically all, you know, queer people and women, It's like all people who have probably had really difficult experiences with their sexuality. And I think that's really just, you know, the answer and then just finding, uh, just thinking about ways in which all of those things intersect and overlap and, and show up with, you know, each other, um, and finding something within that, realm to like look at deeply is kind of how it all happened. So Melissa, sex is something that people usually aren't talking about when there's a discussion about disordered eating and body image, and you have this academic background in human sexuality. So I'm wondering, is that something that you were interested in and like in, in exploring that intersection? Or was it something that happened later on? It is definitely something that happened later on. I really kind of felt like those parts of my life or those interests in my life were very separate, the sexuality and the eating disorder stuff. Um, but when I was doing my master's program, I was very interested in looking at body image and media representation and how that affected psychosexual development in adolescent girls. And as I moved into the doctoral program, I started really thinking about how or looking at research on sexuality and eating disorders and realizing that one, there isn't a whole lot of research there, but also the research being done in that space tends to be done by, you know, clinical psychologists who are eating disorder experts 
who have an interest in sexuality. And that's awesome. And like bless them for doing that work. But they didn't have uh, a sex research background. They didn't have a sexologist on their team, which meant that the way that they were looking at sexuality was a little narrow and a little, um, there wasn't a lot of nuance there. And that's kind of like, I had that light bulb moment of like, oh, I know exactly what I can add to this conversation now. But really kind of the core of what I, what got me sort of interested in doing that research was that sex was always sort of defined as intercourse. It was very, very narrowly defined. And people would talk about sex drive a lot. Like people did a lot of studies on women with eating disorders in particular and um, sex drive and sexual functioning. But people weren't really looking at touch. That was the thing that was like my moment where I was like, well, wait a minute. (laughs) You're telling me that, for example, women with anorexia don't have high sex drives, but like, do they like to hug? Like no one's asking that. And I feel like that's a good question to have an answer to. You know, if you're working with people, if you're working with clients who are struggling in their sexuality, who have eating disorders, and that's kind of how it all came together. Like, it was just, here's a question that hasn't been answered before. So I guess that's my project. <laughs> that's kind of how it happened. So what is the answer then? Because now I'm really curious, like, with the, <laughs> with the yeah. research that you've done, kind of how, how does this disordered eating manifest sexually beyond, like, yeah, the def- so- you know, the typical definition of sex? Yeah, so I specifically, I looked at something very specific, which is how women with anorexia nervosa make meaning of their sexual experiences. So I can really only speak mostly to women with anorexia and not other populations. But in that group of people, the sexuality tends to be something that, that folks struggle with in terms of feeling averse to sexuality, avoidance of sexual behavior, having like really immature kind of thinking around sexuality. But what I found that was really interesting in the um, group that, uh, the group of women that I interviewed was that, yeah, they mostly felt like sex was something, um, sexual stuff wasn't something they were super interested in, but they were more or less interested in sensual touch and separating those two things out is not something that a lot of people think to do. That like your sensual experiences of being hugged or cuddled or holding hands or like a massage, that those things are very different from sexual behavior, like explicitly sexual behavior. And I feel like once you separate those for people, it's sort of like this really big like aha moment that people have when they're like, oh, my sex drive is one thing. But then there's this other thing called skin hunger, which mm. is the extent to which you crave sensual interactions. And then people can kind of talk about, oh, like, maybe those things are different for me. And I think that's really was kind of the key. Question about skin hunger. So is that something that is just something that you would practice in an intimate relationship? Or can that be like just with your friends and being like touchy-feely and huggy? Like, can you satisfy that hunger in a non-romantic relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Heck, even. (laughs) Like, you know, you can cuddle with your cat. And like, that's also that can also satisfy skin hunger. Yeah. I was just thinking in the back of my head, like, I'm such a huge cuddler. So I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. like, my skin, my skin hunger is probably at an all time high, because I'm just always like, I want to cuddle, I want to cuddle, I want to cuddle. And it brings (laughs) me so much joy. I'm such a cuddler. Um, So that would mean I have real and I think two people don't realize that when you don't get Mm -hmm. and obviously everyone's skin hunger is at a different level. But if you have moderate to high skin hunger and you're not being touched by friends, family, partners, um, animals, whatever, 
you can feel this really deep sense of loneliness yeah, and like a really deep sense of dissatisfaction in your life. And, you know, I, I think about it a lot, like in the winter, like I'm not going out a lot. I'm not really seeing people face to face. I have so, because I work online, so many of my interactions are online and not face to face. And I get to this point where I'm just like sad and like I feel lonely and I'm like, Oh, it's because no one's hugged me. It's like, I'm talking to people, but we're not having, because even like eye contact, obviously that's not touch, but there's something there that is, uh, that satisfies something unique. So yeah, I think that, I think that it's, it's super real. Yeah. I think it's interesting just thinking about friends who have, I, I'm happy that you're putting like words to our name to it. Cause like friends who have been single or even when I was single for a really long time and just felt like, wait a minute, I'm missing out on like a core component of what it means to be human, which is just like, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, like hugging, cuddling, you know, I think for everyone it's different in terms of the amount that you need, but something to kind of figure out how to incorporate. I feel like I've seen documentaries, maybe it was on Vice in Japan where they have these like cuddle boys. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Which they is have cool. Them in the US too. Like you can have a cuddle party. I love <laughs> like it. or you can like go to like a professional cuddler. I would that's do that. So cool. Yeah. Right? It's totally a thing. And obviously that's you know, different people have different boundaries on who they want to touch. But right. it's definitely a thing. Right. So with women who are struggling with either disordered eating or body dissatisfaction and are in a partnership, what are some things that they can do to help build that trust and connection? Because I think it can be especially hard when someone is struggling with their own body image, they don't feel comfortable in their body. And I mean, I've seen how that can manifest in different ways intimately. So what are some ways Mm -hmm. to, to build connection? I think that's a good question. So based on what I've read, my understanding is that folks tend to feel, people with eating disorders tend to feel like part of what makes a connection with someone else, including a romantic partner, intimate and and, um, close is being able to talk about the eating disorder itself Mm. and creating space for someone or even, you know, we could extend that to say just like body image issues in general, being able to talk to someone very candidly about that experience builds a lot of trust, right? Because you have to really trust someone to be able to talk to them about that and to be able to hold that as the partner is also hard. So like that builds a lot of trust. And then I also think partners sometimes take it very personally when their partners have are struggling with body image. Like partners feel like, well, I love you and I think you're beautiful. So, you know, like why isn't that enough? (laughs) And I think there's something there around like, the partner understanding that this is really not about you. And it's not about this relationship. It's about this, you know, experience that this person is having individually, or, you know, obviously body image stuff is also a social issue, but like this is something that this person is experiencing that you can't fix as a partner, right? Like this is deep seated stuff. You can't just fix it by being like, Oh, I think you're cute. So I think that really being able to have that conversation and not feeling as the partner that it's your job to fix it, but rather it's your job to kind of create a container for that conversation to be happening um, and to help the partner, the struggling partner, kind of, you know, find the resources that they need to be able to work through their own stuff Um, and to be patient. You know, I think the body image thing with sexuality is also, you know, I think (laughs) most women I've ever spoken to are like, 
oh yeah, like I think about this stuff all the time. Like I had read a study one time that said almost a third of women struggle to reach orgasm because they're too focused on how they look. Mm, That's a huge number of people, right? And I think just kind of as the, you know, the the other partner is just kind of understanding that (laughs) and also just being very patient with the fact that this is something that, you know, someone has probably been dealing with their whole lives or for many, many years. And that that is something that they have to work through and that you can work through it together, but without kind of, yeah, taking responsibility for it. I think that's a really important point that you bring up. And as, as someone who works with people who have eating disorders, they tend to really appreciate the fact that they are able to talk about it because so many of them, maybe they haven't recognized what's going on as an actual eating disorder, but it's just been like, Mm -hmm. you know, I ask a question, um, do you feel like food dominates your life? And just to be able to have those feelings, to be able to express them and talk about them with someone who is compassionate, I think is is really helpful for people, whether it's your dietitian or therapist or even partner Mm -hmm. without you know, the expectation that there's something deeply wrong that needs to be fixed, like immediately, I think just like, listening and helping people um, explain like what it is that the eating disorder has been helped like doing for them, because ultimately, it is, it's a coping mechanism. And it's, you know, it's helping in some way. And I think we kind of vilify it. But when we bring it to that level and try to unpack kind of yeah, how it has been helping us and you know, it can it can be uh, good for folks. Now, in terms of like romantic relationships, this is <laughs> tricky because I feel like there's always, yeah, these conversations w- between partners who may not be aligned necessarily when it comes to like what's okay to say to your partner or like what kind of language is not okay and what you should avoid when it comes to talking about your partner's body. Because I feel like sometimes in a relationship, whether it's the man or the woman or man to man, woman to woman, you might feel ownership over your partner's body and feel like you can have a say or like they need to do this or snap Mm -hmm. back or da da da. So what do you feel like what language is like okay to say or use about someone's body, if any, and then what should people just like stop talking about with their partner? (laughs) Uh, So I will say that when you talked about the idea of like having ownership over someone's body, I like felt it in my gut. Like I was like, Oh, it's a lot of relationships (laughs) immediately. Right. I think that there's a, there's a lot of conversation happening. um, Just like, around this idea that like you somehow have ownership over your partner that is a very normalized idea especially people who practice monogamy is like this idea of like you are my other half and so you somehow belong to me in some way let's let's unlearn that let's like unpack that because that's not okay because you are an individual person your partner is an individual person um no one belongs to anyone and everyone's body belongs to them and you cannot tell your partner what to do with their body ever. That bo- that's definitely unhealthy, but it can border on abusive or it can be abusive to believe that you get to wield some kind of power or control over what your partner does with their body, whether that's how they dress, what they eat, you know, like the shape of their body, etc. I think that in terms of what is okay or what is appropriate versus inappropriate to say to someone, that's so dependent on the person. And I think that just having a very very clear conversation about like what what is what are your desires and boundaries around how I talk about your body and people probably have never been asked that before most people so they might kind of be like what I don't know like I'm not really sure what how to answer this question 
And I think you can give them sort of examples. Like, can I tell you that, you know, that I like certain parts of your body? Because for some people, it's like, wow, thanks. Like, you notice, you know, whatever, whatever that you like. But for some people, that's like, wow, you're now like objectifying me because you're segmenting my body into parts. And they don't want that. Or some people might be really comfortable being told that they're beautiful. And then some, you know, some people might take that as a compliment, whereas others might be like, I don't want to be valued for how I look. I want to be valued for other things. So I think giving people examples of, can I say this? Can I say that? Can I say this other thing? Can help them kind of decide what their boundaries are. In terms of things we should just never do, (laughs) I think there are a lot. I mean, I think there's, again, like anything that is somehow using, uh, somehow controlling what your partner is doing. So again, whether that's you can't wear that, you know, it's one thing to be like, hey, this is, um, you know, a black tie event. You can't wear sweatpants. <laughs> like that's, mm-hmm. You know, that's one thing. But it's another thing to be like, you can't dress like that because you belong to me. And I don't want other people to think that you're like available. For example, telling people what to eat, telling people to gain or lose weight. There was a study that showed that um, I want to say it was like 30% of relationships, of college aged relationships, one partner told the other to either gain or lose weight. That's a lot of people telling you what to do with your body. And it was usually men telling women to lose weight and women telling men to gain weight. (laughs) Sorry, it's not funny. (laughs) It's like if you love your partner, you should be loving them and maybe not entirely unconditionally, but you should be loving them not for how they look. So, yeah, let's not do that. Um, But, yeah, and I think, yeah, commenting on what people are eating in ways that are negative is also something that I see a lot of people doing or be, people being like, oh, honey, don't forget. You're like on a diet. Don't eat that. Like oh, that person didn't God. forget. <laughs> you right. know, like let them have the cake. It's fine. It's going to be fine. So yeah, I would just say generally speaking, definitely stuff that is in any way kind of like I'm telling you what to do with your body or what goes into your body or onto your body is not appropriate. Want to take a short pause to talk to you about Cured Nutrition, a holistic supplement company that's based out of Boulder, Colorado. CBD has been getting a lot of shine lately, and it can get really confusing trying to figure out what products are the right fit for you. Cured Nutrition has made it easy. In addition to their 100% locally sourced Colorado hemp extracts, Cured also guarantees a rigorous quality control system. Their Super Transparent have published all the details about their products directly onto their website, which you can find at curednutrition.com. CBD is most commonly known for its calming, stress-relieving properties. Cured, however, didn't just stop at CBD. They've created all types of products that you can integrate into your wellness routine. So whether you're looking for the trademark maximum strength, full spectrum, or THC-free oils, or you want something a little more edible, like their CBD-infused cookie dough on the go, they also have these really cool spot-treating salves that you can put on your skin. It's infused with full spectrum from organically grown Colorado hemp and is formulated with wholesome ingredients like peppermint and rosemary essential oils. If you're wondering how can I get my hands on cured nutrition products, it's a very easy process. The company ships their products to all 50 states. If you're wondering which products I absolutely love, 
I have been trying their cured spices. They have one that's made with cinnamon and honey. It's absolutely delicious. And then if you want to go the savory route, they have this roasted garlic and lemon pepper spice that's also really, really good. Make sure you check out curednutrition.com, C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com, where our listeners can use the code FOODHEAVEN at checkout to get 15% off. That's curednutrition.com, and the code is FOODHEAVEN. We'll make sure we include all the details in our show notes. Let's get back to our episode. Yeah, working within health and wellness, especially in the clinical setting, I remember when I would get couples that would come into my office and, oh my God, it would be like arguments would be breaking out in my office because it would be like one partner telling the other partner, you need to stop eating this or you need to lose weight or you need to gain weight. And especially now with just like wellness culture being everywhere, it's like, people want to, I guess there's more of a drive to live healthier, more balanced lives, but then it goes to the extreme where it's like, yeah, everyone needs to get on board. Everyone in the house needs to be on board. And it's very like controlling and obsessive. And so specifically with people that have partners, I've seen this go both ways where it's like, people have contacted us, like our listeners, like my partner isn't down with like healthy eating. My partner isn't down with working out or the other way where it's like, I I have a partner who is just like keeps trying to like push this onto me so like what Mm -hmm. are things that you know that people can do on both ends because um it can come across as like really controlling especially if you have someone who is like stuck on like this is what we need to do to be healthy and it just becomes yeah it it does it's like wellness in an unhealthy way what are what are things that partners can do i think there's you know Of course, again, I really, really feel strongly that I think that culturally we have this idea that our partners, um, that our bond with our partner is basically like an extension of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think we really, really need to like cut ties with that idea um, because that is not true. And I think that that is at the root of a lot of this. Like, well, if I'm doing this, then you have to do it. (laughs) It's like, well, no, actually, I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. I think too that there's also this idea that like, you know, we've decided to be together. We're in it for the long haul. So as we grow, we have to grow in the same direction. And that's also unfair because people grow in different directions. And I think if it comes to a point that whatever your interest is in life, if it's wellness, quote unquote, or something else, if, if your interests have, have diverged so greatly, maybe you shouldn't be together anymore. Exactly. Like that's an option. <laughs> it's an option to be like, you know what? I'm really happy that you want to do this thing, but like, I don't. And if you keep pressuring me to do it, I can't stay in this relationship. And of course you want to be able to enjoy the things you have, these things that you enjoy in your life and you want your partner to take part in them. Like that's real, but there has to be some compromise there. Like my partner is a film writer and I don't really like movies. Mm. I mean, that's a point of contention, (laughs) right? Like I don't want to go to the movies. (laughs) So, and you know, there has to be like, um, at some point, some kind of compromise is like, you know, if you want to go to the movies, you can go to the movies with someone else. <laughs> you can go to the movies alone. If and when a movie comes out I want to see, I will, you'll be the first one to know, you know? <laughs> and I think you have to find a way to be like, you're your own person. You have these feelings and these interests before me. And uh, I'm, I can't change what those are. And I think folks also, I used to work in domestic violence. And so I also think People in general just have very, very unhealthy ideas about what a healthy relationship is. Right. 
And that a lot of folks' ideas around what makes a relationship good are actually like very dangerous ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think just in general, folks really need like a revamped <laughs> kind of like education around what it means to have a healthy relationship with a partner. Because a healthy relationship with a partner is not, you have to do this thing because I like it. Can you, you know? talk about so, what, what a healthy relationship is and what it isn't? <laughs> sure. So there's kind of, if you want to put them into three categories, obviously, you know, it's a spectrum really, but there's like healthy relationships, unhealthy relationships, and abusive relationships. They're all different or technically relationships aren't abusive, partners are. So you can have a relationship with an abusive partner. That's very um, kind of like nuanced and like important language shift. So a healthy relationship would be one in which you have two or more people who are individuals and have decided to be in relationship with one another where the relationship, the dynamics of that relationship have been compromised with all people involved, right? So let's say your relationship of two people that both of you have had a conversation about, this is what this relationship looks like. This is what we have in our relationship. This is what we do not have in our relationship. The things that I did not get out of this relationship that I need, I will find in other relationships, whether they're you know, romantic or sexual relationships or their friendships or their familial relationships, whatever. And respecting a person as a whole person who gets to decide every single day that they want to be with you and that this is something they want to work on. And it's also healthy to have conflict. And there will be conflict in all relationships because we're humans and we have conflict and that's okay. But how you talk about that conflict and resolve that conflict matters. So When a relationship becomes unhealthy, there's just some dynamic in the relationship where like a really good example of an unhealthy relationship is like one or just a common one that people understand is sort of this idea of like the people that they're always um, getting back together and breaking up and getting back Mm. together and being like, oh, I can't live without you and coming back together. It's like, (laughs) we must have so much passion and like, we're just so in love. We can't live without one another. When it's it's good, it's good. Well, clearly there's something wrong. (laughs) Clearly something isn't working here. There's something off about this relationship, if, if the relationship is either like really, really high or it's really, really low would be like an example of that dynamic. But any kind of dynamic where it's like we're not communicating or like our communication is really like passive aggressive or violent. I feel like it's one of those things like almost like you know in your gut, like this isn't right. Something's mm-hmm. not right here. This doesn't feel good. Relationships should feel good most of the time. And if they are not, something's off. And then a relationship with an abusive partner would be a relationship in which one person holds power and control over another person and they manipulate the other person to do things that benefit them. So you can be abusive in various ways, sexual abuse, financial abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, etc. And you can use very many different tactics to control what another person does. And when it's that off balance and the dynamic is that extreme and power is at the center of it, that's when you would say that that, that looks like abuse. Mm, That's really helpful. As you were saying that, I was just thinking also about healthy ways of communicating on disagreements, especially when it comes to food, because I mean, that's like the area that we work in. I'll use like my parents as an example. I'm sure they're okay with me sharing. But like my mom is always like pressuring my dad to eat less rice and eat more vegetables, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering, like, what are some practical ways to shift that conversation? Because I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to in trying to get 
you know, their partner is like on board with either eating the meals that they're cooking. But like you said, it's important to also have autonomy. Like if they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. But what are some like good ways to navigate that so that it's a productive conversation where both people feel like they're getting something from it? I think the thing that I generally kind of send people to in thinking about how to have conversations with anyone in their life, but particularly romantic partners around anything, is um, nonviolent communication strategies. Because those uh, tactics are very much grounded in you expressing your feelings without projecting them onto your partner. There's a really big difference between saying, you know, I feel like I would like to eat in this way for this reason. And it's difficult for me to do that when you are making restaurant reservations for us like once a week, right? Between saying that and being like, you are ruining my healthy lifestyle <laughs> by doing this thing that I don't want you to do. You're saying the same thing, really, but you're saying it in very different ways. You're right. communicating it very differently. And they're going to land very differently for the other person. And I think making sure to keep the focus on this is what I'm feeling versus this is what you're doing can be a really helpful way to have a conversation. And always remembering that that person's experience, your partner's experience of the situation is going to be different because we all have different versions of the reality. And, you know, because we all have stuff around it. So also kind of being willing, this is the hard part, to like listen to what this person is saying and to hear it and to hold, again, like kind of creating the container, to hold space for it and to say, I hear you, here's my perspective. Now what can we do? And I think people kind of forget the like, the, the part about being productive. <laughs> like we've talked about it. So now what? What do we do now? What can we do differently? Where can we compromise? Maybe three nights a week we can do this thing or maybe okay i'll only we'll only go out to eat twice a month then if it's a struggle for you you know and finding a way to compromise because so like we were saying like any anything can become extreme and if you're in a place in your life where you're like my relationship with food is such that i can't you can't surprise me with a night out like that's that's extreme like you should be able to handle that and if you can't handle it then that's maybe something that you need to deal with. And it's not really about what your partner has done. It's about your relationship to food. So kind of working on all those things at once is hard. <laughs> I'm working on myself. I'm working on my yeah. relationship. I'm holding space for this other person. It's a lot. Life is hard. It is. <laughs> it is a lot. And right? also, yeah, I, I think people feel attacked a lot of times depending on how you communicate. So I love that you spoke about just tone and yeah, the way that you're communicating that message and just being very gentle, because especially when it comes to food and cooking, it's like people take things very mm -hmm. personally when you don't want to eat their food or when yeah. you don't want to share meals with them. And it can really be a battleground for like lots of resentment and arguments. And so I love that you approach it with like open communication and also compromise because it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. like, yeah, it doesn't have to be so black and white either. So shifting gears a little bit want to talk about sex <laughs> of um, course yeah talk about like what are some things that women can do to feel more confident in the bedroom especially if they're struggling with body issues which I feel is like most women <laughs> like what are some things that yeah, we can all totally. do yeah I think one thing is there's a lot of pressure 
on women, especially kind of like the liberated woman, there's like a lot of pressure to just be like really, really confident sexually. Right. And I think it's okay to not be. Like, I think we have to va- be, you know, kind of validate and affirm that, you know, as a, a woman or anyone of like a marginalized gender or anyone with any other marginalized identities, like the world has been against you your whole life and your body has been a site of that marginalization and oppression your whole life. That is not something that you can just like shrug off and being patient and compassionate with yourself in that if I'm struggling in this way, um, that that's okay. Maybe it's something I want to work on, but it's okay that this is where I'm at. And I think having there, if there are ways in which you do feel comfortable having sex, let's say, okay, I feel more comfortable having sex with the lights off. I feel more comfortable having sex if I keep my shirt on um, or if I'm in certain positions, that's okay. And I think that you can communicate that to a partner. Like, hey, I'm going to have a lot more fun if these conditions are involved. And, you know, research shows that women with negative body image tend to be less sexually adventurous, less, yeah, sexually confident. They don't want to try new things in the bedroom. They don't want to have sex with the lights on, et cetera. And that's kind of seen as this like really negative thing. But I think that you can kind of reframe it into like, this is how I'm coping with this. And I'm going to enjoy the sex if it's, you know, done in this way. And I would rather you be having fun <laughs> than be worrying about, is this maybe, am I confident enough? Mm-hmm. That's just another pressure to put on you. So I think there's that. There's also this concept that I suggest folks look into called sensate focus. Sensate focus is something that was developed by Masters and Johnson, who are sex researchers in the 50s, who are now like popular again, I guess, because there was like a Showtime show about them. And sensate focus is basically, it's a process and it's technically something you should do with the sex therapist, but you can like look it up. But sensate focus is like slowly introducing touch into your relationship. So this can be really useful for people who have a difficult relationship to sex, whether they've survived sexual violence or they're very disconnected from their bodies from trauma or other mental health issues, including disordered eating. Sensei focus is basically like you start with touch that is not explicitly sexual, you know, like touching your hand or your arm, like fingertips, like running down your forearm, like that kind of feeling. And then kind of progressing slowly into, you know, more, more sexual touch. And it kind of builds trust between one, you know, partners. It kind of allows you to kind of like re-explore sexuality because especially as you become adults, you know, when you're a kid, not a kid, when you're like a teenager, we'll say, and you're starting to like explore your sexuality, things move very slowly usually. It's like every time we hang out, we go a little further, you know? But when you're an adult, it's like, all right, we're hooking up, sex is on the table. And it's like, wow, like, I don't know if I was ready for all that. Like, just because I'm an adult, like, it, things move a lot faster. And I think kind of taking a step back, and like, it doesn't have to move that fast. We can build trust with a partner slowly and it can be fun and it can be sensual and exciting, and it can get you to a place where you are open to the sensations happening in your body. Because what is happening most of the time is that folks are dissociating when they're having sex. Yeah. Like if you have a disconnect with your body, if that like mind-body connection is, is ruptured, a lot of people dissociate when they're having sex. They're like, I'm not really here. I'm just going through the motions. So kind of like finding a way to get back into your body, I think, can be helpful. Yeah, and I also think like how you see yourself within this world really affects how you feel yourself and that impacts sex life as well, which is why I love that in your work you talk about like beauty standards, which I think is so important and not addressed enough. And there's like mm-hmm. there's this 
whole conversation of like this is just who I'm attracted to. Like I like oh blonde. yeah, I like yeah. I just listened to this um, podcast episode on invisibilia, and it it was this. Oh, um, that was good. Yeah, it was like an Asian woman who does like social justice work around like race and identity, and then she was like, "Wait a minute, I'm literally only attracted to like white dudes," and she's like, "I should probably explore that." <laughs> and then yeah. in, in her like exploring it, she went to the, <laughs> she went to like the other stream, but she was like, "I'm only attracted to black dudes," and she's like, "Okay, wait a minute, I have to like really like <laughs> figure out what's happening here," and so yeah. I think we have those defaults like I like girls with long hair and it's like okay where are these beauty standards coming from mm -hmm. you know so can you talk a little bit about that yeah so there's this idea of desirability politics and desirability politics is the idea exactly what you're saying that who we are taught to desire is a sociopolitical issue it's it, we're, we're taught that right we are like oh yeah I have a type and like yeah sure there might be a kind of a type of person that you tend to be attracted to right like oh I like you see a person walk in and, you know, your friends turn to you and they're kind of like, oh, yeah, it's like this for you. <laughs> so like that's that's the thing. But I think that a lot of times, you know, people will say stuff. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't date fat women, just a preference. Like that's not just a preference. That didn't come out of nowhere. You know, oh, I'm just not attracted to black girls. That's not a thing. That's not a thing. Because what you're saying is. I am ascribing some series of stereotypes to this kind of person, this type of person with this identity or multiple identities. And I'm not really seeing them as a person. It is impossible that you could never be attracted to a person of a certain race. That's, That's absurd, true. right? Like what that is so minimizing of, of one aspect of a person. So, but people will say, oh yeah, no, it's just my preference. And I don't think that's real. <laughs> so I think kind of really unpacking that and looking at when we talk about beauty standards, people often think about, oh, yeah, like thinness is a beauty standard, which 100% it is. But whiteness is a beauty standard, traditional kind of like cis heteronormative ways of being. So like women being traditionally feminine, that is a beauty standard. Being able, like not being non-disabled, that's a beauty standard. Class is a beauty standard, right? Like you have to have money to be able to afford certain clothes or certain haircuts or certain whatever it is that makes you quote unquote more attractive. All of those things are also beauty standards. And when we say that we're not attracted to people or we're only attracted to people who fit those standards, that is oppression. Like that's, that is coming from somewhere that's coming from an oppressive like power structure. And that's not nothing. That's not a small thing. And that's hard to hear. People get like very upset when you say that because people feel really strongly. They really want to hold on to the idea that they have certain preferences. And, you know, I think too, like people say, oh, like I like brunettes, for example. Usually what they're saying is I tend to be attracted to brunettes, but like I wouldn't not date a blonde. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's sort of like, oh yeah, this tends to be the kind of person I go for, but like it's open. But when it comes, but hair color isn't really an issue of oppression. But when we're talking about something like race or class or size, now we're talking about issues of power and oppression. And to say, you know, blanket statement, I don't like people who have this color skin or this size body or whatever, that's, that's a whole other beast. And that is something that we have 100% learned from society and need to unlearn. That doesn't mean you need to date everybody. I'm not saying like go out right now and like find fat women and fall in love with her. Like that's not your, you know, that you don't have to do that, but you should be questioning, looking at 
there's this idea called desire mapping, which is like going back and looking at who are the people I've been attracted to? What do they have in common? Who's missing and why? You know, and like really sitting with that for yourself. I mean, like, why don't I date people who look like X, Y, Z? And does that just so happen to correlate with society telling me that X, Y, Z isn't attractive and working through that for yourself? Wow. (laughs) I feel like I've, I've thought about this a little bit and it, especially when that podcast episode came out and I've also thought about it, you know, within the black community for people who say like, oh yeah, I prefer like light skin or long hair or Mm -hmm. just stuff like that where I'm like, okay, that's BS. But I've never heard someone kind of go as deep as you just did. And I think it was phenomenal. So thank you for breaking all of that down. And just kind of moving on a little bit to body kindness, what can women do to be more kind to their bodies? What are some practical tips that you can provide? Oh, I feel like there are so many ones that are like pretty foundational that I'm sure you've covered on your podcast before. (laughs) I'm trying to think of something unique that I can offer you. I think, I think one thing is really standing or being strong in your bodily autonomy. Really truly believing, kind of re-capturing the idea that your body belongs to you. Little kids know that, right? Like if you're a toddler, you're like, my body's great and I'm touching it and I'm walking around. It's like, I'm, I'm screaming when I want to and I'm saying no when I really, really mean no. And somewhere along the line, like we learn to not be that way, particularly as women. And I think that kind of coming back into a place where you're like, no, my body belongs to me. I can say no when I want to say no. I can do what I want with it. Um, It's very powerful and very hard and very kind to your body. That would be like, and that that encompasses so much between communicating what you want sexually to eating what you want to, you know, wearing what you want, et cetera, et cetera. But really believing, I think, that you are your own person can be a really, really powerful thing to take back after it's been taken away. We always like to ask our guests, like, what does wellness look like for you? And especially for you, I'm curious because you have this background in, like, body politics and sex. And, and yeah, and just, like, we like to ask our guests this question because it really it really redefines wellness because it's, like, oftentimes it's promoted as, like, this is what you should be eating and you need to be drinking yeah. your green smoothie, which we love. And we actually just had one this mm-hmm. morning. And but yesterday. it's there's so much more to it. So can you share with our listeners, like, what? what's your definition of wellness? Something that really comes to mind, right? We talk a lot about self-care. We talk about this idea of taking care of ourselves. And I think that's really important and really powerful and really necessary. We don't talk so much about community care. We don't talk as much about what does it mean to be in community with people, to have people be there for us, to have people who we can go to when we're struggling, who we can share space with, that we can share emotions with, that we can share food with. I don't think we talk enough about building an intentional community around us of people who help us kind of like vibrate on a higher level, that kind of bring us into the person that we want to be. And I think that that is a kind of wellness that in, you know, capitalist society, where we're so focused on the individual that we really, really forget about. That wellness is also about who you surround yourself with and being really intentional 
about who you surround yourself with, I think is an aspect of wellness. Melissa, can we be friends in real life? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, just I'll build community with yes, you. Yes, I'm like, yes, I need you in my community. I love this episode so much. I think it's one of my favorites. I learned a lot. And for people who just want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? My website, which we've just discussed, is very beautiful. Um, <laughs> my website is <laughs> my website is melissafabella.com. There's a contact form there. You can download my ebook about eating disorders and sexuality. My social is on there. That's pretty much where you can find everything. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so great. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye, Melissa. Bye. Bye. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Food Heaven podcast. If you haven't already, leave a review. Listen now to this listener review by Cruise Control Fitness. I really want to know how y'all be coming up with these names. (laughs) (laughs) I just heard the most recent episode and was so very much inspired by it. It features the editor-in-chief at Self Magazine and her efforts to be more inclusive and diverse. Diversity and inclusion can sometimes be tense, uncomfortable, and I commend Wendy and Jess for not being afraid to discuss it. I just learned about the podcast today, and you definitely have a listener for life. Oh, my God. Thank you, Cruise Control Fitness. And make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the pod and leave a review of your very own. Also, connect with us online. We are on Instagram at Food Heaven. We're also on Twitter at Food Heaven Show and Facebook at Food Heaven Made Easy. Our podcast is released every Wednesday. In each episode, we cover tips and tricks for making lifelong changes to help you live a healthier, more balanced life. We also interview leading experts in the field of health and nutrition and pick their brains on how to cultivate a healthy life that you love. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.